0: Hello, readers, and welcome to the Read Podcast, where we connect you with researchers, thought leaders, and educators on topics in reading and child development. Read is produced by the Winward Institute. I'm your host, Danielle Scarano, and during October, the Winward Institute and the Winward School are putting dyslexia in focus in recognition of Dyslexia Awareness Month. This month on READ, you will hear from four past READ experts on insights specific to dyslexia related to screening and identification, education and intervention, and advocacy. This READ podcast episode features Dr. Hugh Katz. You can tune into the full conversation on episode 18 by visiting readpodcast.org or on your favorite podcast platform. In this clip, I asked Dr. Katz about dyslexia, screening, and identification. So. As we conceptualize dyslexia, I know that you have recently, or it's in press now, your article with Dr. Petcher. When you, you developed a model, the multifactorial model for dyslexia, the cumulative risk and resilience model for dyslexia. So, as we conceptualize dyslexia, where does it fit in this overall framework of reading disabilities, of language based learning disabilities? or even just developmental language disabilities. Let's can we actually differentiate between those types of terms? Yeah,
1: sure. The simple view of reading was introduced over 30 years ago now by Goff and Tunmer to try to capture what's involved in reading. They were particularly interested in decoding and they wanted to indicate how decoding was separate from other parts of reading. And so their model argues that decoding plus language comprehension or linguistic comprehension is equal to comprehension. So one needs not only to, to be able to read the words, but needs to understand those words in order to understand what they read. Individuals can have problems With different parts of the reading process. The decoding aspect of reading is particularly problematic for children with dyslexia. So, the primary characteristic of dyslexia is a severe and prolonged problem with word reading and it's differentiated from other types of reading problems such as a poor comprehension or specific reading disability which is not due to word reading problems but other difficulties in language and knowledge and cognitive processing that would allow somebody to understand what they're reading.
0: Mm, That's interesting.
1: You said that how's that differentiated from other types of language problems. The other language problem that I've been interested in for much of my career is specific language impairments which is now moved to a different name. but slightly different than a specific language impairment, but that's a developmental language disorder. And children with developmental language disorders have problems in spoken language, either in producing or, and or in understanding uh, spoken language. There's a overlap with between children with dyslexia and children with a developmental language disorder, in that about fifty percent of Clinical cases that have either one of those problems will also have the other. That tends to be the case because kids that come to the attention of clinicians usually have either a more severe problem or have more secondary issues, right? So we see a higher co-occurrence of of dyslexia and DLD in the clinical groups. But if we go out and measure reading ability and language abilities, we see that the overlaps about 30%. So about 30% of the kids who have dyslexia will have a severe enough language problems and vocabulary, grammar to be identified as ha- having DLD. And about 30% of the kids who have spoken language difficulties will have uh, word reading problems that are severe enough to be referred to as dyslexia.
0: Mm, you've conceptualized this model of dyslexia with Dr. Petcher as more of a spectrum Yes, I want to clarify what this model is and the purpose of the framework of the multifactorial model. So can you just walk us, if you were to give us an elevator speech, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. If you were to just give us a, a summary of what this multifactorial model is.
1: It, it's easier with the visual image to show you what the model is about, but let me give you a little background on the model. For many years in trying to understand dyslexia, we've approached it kind of from a single deficit notion, that is that there's a primary underlying cause for children that have s- severe and prolonged difficulties learning to read. Right? Initially, it was vision, right? So the Early, early, views about why children had problems reading was it had something to do with the visual system, right? But we came to recognize that most kids who had dyslexia seemed to have problems in language, particularly in the phonological aspects of language, right? Being aware of storing, retrieving phonological uh, or sound-based aspects of, of language. And the reason that seems to be important is because they were mapping the letters of written language onto the sounds of speech. And if if you have phonological difficulties, it makes it more difficult for you to learn how the orthography of the, of the language works. But we had kind of blinders on, if you will, and once we got a hold of that theory, we kind of went with it and focused primarily on the phonological basis. But as we began to look at individual differences in kids, we found that not all kids who had dyslexia had a phonological difficulty, and not all kids who had a phonological difficulty ended up with dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So if we were going to explain word-reading problems fully, all right. What we had to do was look for some other potential causes, other factors related to word reading that could account for those difficulties beyond phonological difficulties. Right. We still think about phonological problems as being a major factor in many cases of dyslexia, but sometimes it's the problems aren't as severe as they are in other cases. What our model does is is an extension of what other people have proposed in the past, is a notion that multiple factors interact to create the probability that you're going to have difficulty with learning to read. It's not an either-or type thing. So these things, the genetic, neurological, biological factors that that I'm talking about, don't combine to absolutely determine that you're gonna have dyslexia, they just increase the probability that you're gonna have. And so what we've begun to add to our notion of other factors that might affect the kind of the trajectory, if you will, of reading development, are things like problems outside language problems that are outside the area of phonology, so problems in vocabulary, grammar, so forth. And when we look there, we find that most kids with dyslexia have some degree of difficulties with spoken language, so it's not severe enough to say that they have a developmental language disability, but they have enough of it to increase their probability of having a reading problem when you combine that with other factors, primarily the phonological difficulties. So looking at early language development is going to be an important thing to do if we're going to identify kids that have a higher risk for reading problems. There's also some evidence that problems in vision could contribute to the likelihood of having a reading difficulty. We see problems with motion sensitivity, problems with attention span, what's known as crowding, where some individuals will have a crowding phenomenon of the words or letters that are in the periphery will seem closer together and blur each other out, if you will, make it harder to read. We don't understand that completely, but it looks to be something that's associated with dyslexia, attentional problems, kids that have attention deficit disorder, can, if they also have some other difficulties or other risk factors, can go on to have reading problems. We've also considered the possibility that risk factors might also involve environmental situations or factors that typically we haven't thought about because we thought primarily about biological basis of dyslexia, right? But if you have that biological basis and you also have environmental factors that are severe enough, they can increase your risk for having reading problems. So my colleague, Yakov Petcher, has become particularly interested in, in trauma and in looking at kids that have had adverse childhood experiences and how those experiences could result in trauma, which affects their academic performance, and in doing so can interact with other risk factors to lead to having a, a higher probability of having a reading disability.
0: Mm. I always think about this through the educator's perspective. So as you are talking about this model, right, in looking at all these different factors, I'm thinking about the implications for educators in terms of screening what are those implications? Are we, I'm just trying to think out loud in terms of, if I were to turn to my colleague, my, another teacher in, at school or another teacher at a, at a different school, what is this saying for screening and intervention that we should be broadening our look at students, our overview at students, or that we should be looking at more nuanced deficits? What are, what would you say to educators and really thinking about how they apply your research and practice?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, the first thing I point out is not just my research that's come together with this with this model. Right? I I borrowed a lot of these ideas from colleagues that have also been interested in, you know, multiple uh, factors interested in in dyslexia, and have come up with you know other people have talked about protective factors as well. It's a model that Yakov and I put together to help us in our thinking, right? But it, it's not just us that have begun to think in this way. And I do think it has implications for early identification and and I think it takes us a place we haven't been in the past. We kind of had a pretty good idea of of factors to look at in terms of early screening for the last, you know, 20, 30 years or so. I've been doing this for a long time now, and, you know, if I look back to papers that I did in in the 90s, I was looking at some of the same factors that are part of screening instruments that are being used today, right? So, we kind of got our usual suspects for screening, you know, phonological awareness, letter naming, RAND, or language ability. So, forth are are ones that that different measures look at, right? But what kind of a multifactorial uh, model suggests is we might want to broaden that a bit, right? And what I've had my attention drawn to by Yaakov is is the notion that, that we probably ought to pay more attention to what are called biopsychosocial indicators, right? Things in the child's environment, Change in the things in the child's psyche, right? Change in the things in the child's biology that we might not have picked up by looking at kind of the usual suspects. All right. So we've been trying to, to look at this through parent questionnaires, teacher questionnaires to look at, you know, what are the factors may parents or teachers indicate to us that we could put into our models that would would help us deal with differentiating between kids that are at risk and not at risk. Early identification is a really difficult thing to do. We've got to remember that what we're trying to identify are not a discrete group of Kids. These are kids that are further down on a normal distribution of reading ability. Reading's distributed normal, a bell card, and what we what we refer to as children with dyslexia are, are kids at the very end, lower end of that distribution. And because we have to differentiate between kids that are just below kids that don't meet that criteria, there's a lot of gray area in there. And trying to differentiate kids on either side of some cut point is a difficult thing to do. And so having a bit more information might be able to help provide us with information about which kids are more or less at, at risk and give us some idea what which ones we might want to follow up on, provide with some additional intervention and so forth.
0: Yeah. When you're talking about early screening and early identification to me it's it should be a question right that when we screen kids early all kids are going to benefit and you're going to catch those students that do have those biopsychosocial markers showing a reading difficulty or even a reading disability
1: Well, I mean, actually, we might have to ask the right question to get at some of those things that I mentioned, all right, that those might not be part of our typical battery. Now, you said all kids can benefit from screening. The one caution I have there is that screening for the way that we do it only seems to be maximally effective if it's done within an environment where kids have had good instruction to begin with, all right, because some of the better indicators of, of risk our early literacy ability. So letter name and how quickly kids are learning their letter names and learning uh, letter sound correspondence is going to give us a pretty good indication of how easy it's going to be for them to learn to read words. But without early instruction, we're not going to see kids differentiate themselves in letter naming, letter sound abilities, right? So if we were to give one of these screening instruments in a a school, let's say a high poverty school with kids that come to school with less experience with literacy, maybe differences in their language abilities and so forth, we might find 80% of the kids fail the screen. Right? So that wouldn't be an appropriate use of the screen. We want to make sure that we have high quality reading instruction in place to, to get the most optimum use out of a screening tool, and particularly if we do it at, at kindergarten. it's It would be better if it was done, let's say, in October of the school year after the kids have had some experience with early literacy because uh, letter naming is one of our better indicators of, of risk for later reading difficulties now we can screen earlier I mean there are some screening tools that are that are being used in in preschool Nadine gab has an instrument that works down as far down as preschoolers in it and it's a it's a, a good screener but we're going to have more accuracy as we move into in the kindergarten and particularly if the kids have had some literacy and language experiences that will start to uh, differentiate them if you will But if kids come to school with limited literacy and limited or limited language, we're not going to see the individual differences that might be indicative of later problems learning to read.
0: To me, as you're talking, it sounds like this yes and again, that yes, we need screening and we need the effective reading instruction so that we can ensure that all students are getting exposed to language rich effective reading instruction and identifying the students that are still having difficulty with that type of reading instruction. So as we think about screening in general, I have a couple more questions about that. If you have school leaders or teachers that come to you and ask you about screening, what are those, those key insights that you are providing for them to apply in their school context? I mean, where do educators even start when they think about conceptualizing early screening in their schools?
1: Quite a few things. So first, as I mentioned before, having good quality reading instruction to begin with. All right. So if that's in place, then we can begin thinking about doing the screening. All right. But before we do think about doing this screening, important thing to have in place is what you're going to do if a child fails the screen right? So what's the result of the screening, right? We need to have in place a program that will allow educators to address the kids that seem to be having trouble or have risk for later reading problems, right? I primarily argue for an MTSS-type model to where we have different levels of instruction depending upon the needs of the child and really need to have that in place. I see a lot of emphasis being placed on screening and, and states wanting to implement screening for their kids, but we need to have plans for what they're going to do with that screening before we choose particular screeners to be used for that purpose, All right? So early identification is there to provide early intervention, so, so we, we want to have an intervention program in, in place and have trained personnel to be able to, to carry it out and have it differentiated so that it can respond to the needs of kids with different probabilities, if you will, of having uh, uh, reading difficulties. The other thing is, is to recognize that screening is not a perfect, perfect either-or thing, right? That it's an estimate of the, of the risk of, of the child. There's going to be some error associated with it, Right? Our our instruments aren't uh, perfect in their identification, so we have to recognize that we could screen a child one time and find out that later on that they're not at risk, or we could screen a child and uh, find out later on they were at risk, but our instrument didn't tell them tell us that the risk they missed them. So what we might how we might identify that child is by using an instrument a second time. Right? So, you know, a couple, couple, three times a year, a screen might pick up on a child that might have missed initially. The other thing is that I suggest to people not to use an absolute cut score, all right, that if you've got a screening tool and you get a particular score and you're one point below that score, all right, that or one point above that score doesn't mean necessarily you're not at risk. One should have some idea about a confidence interval right that's interval around the scores that gives you an idea of what the probability is that that the child's true score is somewhere within that interval and use something like that to do your identification as opposed to the the exact score and then I think we we know kind of what measures that we should be looking for at different ages. Beginning of kindergarten, we, we wouldn't want measures that have subtests that measure phonological awareness, phonological memory, letter naming, letter sound, rapid automatized naming, oral language ability. Output seems to be better than a receptive language measure, so naming pictures or repeating sentences tends to be a, a good instrument in there. Getting information about family history, all right, that should be part of the intake. When kids come into schools, find out what the family history is. It's not as if we're going to predetermine that a child is, is dyslexic. All right? We'll just use it as an indicator of potential risk. Same thing with language development. We wanna know whether a child is late to talk, whether the child had, had spoken language problems early on, was identified as having a developmental language disability. Those are the types of things that we can, we can look for.
0: Thank you for listening to this dyslexia and focus clip on the read podcast with Dr. Hugh Katz. You can listen to all past read episodes, including episode 18 with Dr. Katz at readpodcast.org. This month, the Winward Institute invites you to engage with us about dyslexia and focus on social media or by visiting our website, thewinwardschoolorg WI, where you can access resources from us and other leaders in the field. Remember that advocacy extends beyond dyslexia awareness month. So stay tuned for more learning and advocacy efforts throughout the year. Until next time, readers.